Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When I was around seven years old, I, I remember my mom, uh, she's braiding my hair. And um, I'm smiling, thinking about it, because she used to yank my head so hard. She's <laughs> my hair. <laughs> Uh, she always said to me, doing your hair was such a nightmare. <laughs> um, but she, she said to me, you know, because you're, you're black, because you're a girl, and because you're Muslim, you're always going to have these three things working against you in the world. So you have to work three times harder to make up for that. You have to work three times harder so that you'll be treated um, the same as everybody else. And, and, and that you should, and that you should always, you know, and I, I didn't actually say this in the book, but she went on to elaborate, like you, you always have to be pushing yourself much further than everyone else, not to be treated the same, but to be more, which is a lot of pressure to put on a, a little kid, but it's also really come to understand it as a way that black people and people of color and, and third culture kids and kids of immigrants and have to find ways to survive within white supremacy. Yeah. And being excellent, outshining, working three times as hard just to be treated the same is a way that we try to survive within white supremacy. How you day, how you day. That was the voice of Layla Saad, my favorite author this year. I'm telling you, her book, Me and White Supremacy, has been off the charts. And it was confirmed by the New York Times, as you'll find out in the beginning of our interview. But I really loved this conversation because she's one of the most authentic people I've known online for a long time. And she breaks down just how white supremacy affects every single one of our lives. You know, the history of it, the way it shows up in, shows, in social settings, rather, and how she grew up with white supremacy and how she came to her own spiritual awakening. It's a very, very fascinating story. It's a very emotional story at times, but it's one that I hope you all really take into account as you approach the world, because we are in very interesting times and we are now forced to think of ourselves and the systems that we've put in place and how they are sustainable or not. So. As you all are thinking about yourselves and who you want to show up as, I hope you become good ancestors, which is what she always says, and become better change makers. Enjoy the episode. Welcome everybody to another episode of As Told by Nomads, and today's guest is one of my favorite people in the world, Layla Saad. Now, Layla is a globally respected writer, speaker, and podcast host on the topics of race, identity, leadership, personal transformation, and social change. As an East African Arab 
British black Muslim woman who was born and grew up in the West and lives in the Middle East, Layla is always sat at a unique intersection of identities from which she's able to draw rich and intriguing perspectives. Layla's work is driven by her powerful desire to become a good ancestor, one of my favorite things to say, and we'll dive into what that means. And she's also driven by her will to live and work in ways to leave a legacy of healing and liberation for those who will come after she's gone. Welcome to the show. Mm, thank you for having me, Ty. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> the pleasure is mine. Let me, let me just let the audience know that uh, Layla is a New York Times bestseller, people. So yes. you, you know, <laughs> this podcast moves different now. I don't know. We've just been sprinkled. <laughs> sprinkled. We just elevated this. It's so funny. I was, Elevation. Actually just, I was actually just updating my email signature and I was like, yeah, you know what? We're going to add that to the email signature. We're not just author anymore. We are New York Times bestselling author. I'm going to own know, that. It's incredible. And please own that. Yo, let me, I just want to say this. Um, I've led as one of the most genuine people or when you see on our, our story on Instagram. We're going to dive into how Instagram channels led to all this. But the journey that she had throughout the whole book tour was just fun and beautiful to watch from afar. Because I remember as you were going on your three-week tour and you were coming yeah. here and you were in different parts. And, and then I could see the joy in your face when you got the notification that you shared with us on, yeah. on, on social media, that you made the list. You hit yeah. the list. That is hard to do uh, in today's yeah. age. And uh, it speaks to your, to your, your work and um, the beautiful thing that, that you've created. But congrats. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm just grinning from ear to ear because I remembered that day and it was like one of the best days of my life. <laughs> Well deserved. <laughs> well deserved. But let's get started with your story. So you and I are, we identify as third culture kids or TCK, right. TCKs. Mm -hmm. And that means, you know, we grew up and spent the formative periods of our lives outside of our parents' cultures. And we, we talk about it in the intro, you know, East African, Arab, British, Black, Muslim woman. But yeah. talk to the audience about your early years. I believe your mom said something to you at seven years old that stuck out. Uh, I'm curious yeah. if you walk us through that yeah so my my parents are are east african and omani so my mom is from zanzibar my dad is from uh, kenya and they have roots in oman but they actually met in cardiff in wales they met each other there in the 70s had me in the early 80s and 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 my brothers and so i grew up as the oftentimes um one of a few only kids of color and the only Muslim kid in predominantly white and Christian spaces. And so I was always very aware of my difference, right? So your, your book um, and your work around, you know, using your difference to make a difference. Right. I really didn't really understand how my difference was a plus thing until I would say just a couple of years ago, to be very honest with you. Um, and now it's something that I lead from and I take great joy in. But as a young kid, it was like, oh, why am I the only different one? Why do I not make sense to other people? Yeah. Um, and, and I think the thing about being a third culture kid is as well that there were other black kids, but they, they weren't coming from the same background as me. And so I couldn't, there was some sort of um, identity sort of, I can, yeah, we, we kind of look the same, but we, we still have very different cultures. Um, so I really was aware of my difference from a young age, but 
when I was around seven years old, I, I remember my mom, uh, she's braiding my hair and um, I'm smiling, thinking about it. She used to yank my head so hard <laughs> to braid my hair. <laughs> Uh, she always said to me doing your hair was such a nightmare <laughs> um, but she she said to me you know because you're you're black because you're a girl and because you're muslim you're always going to have these three things working against you in the world so you have to work three times harder to make up for that you have to work three times harder so that you'll be treated um the same as everybody else and 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 that you should and that you should always, you know, and I, I didn't actually say this in the book, but she went on to elaborate, like you, you always have to be pushing yourself much further than everyone else, not to be treated the same, but to be more, which is a lot of pressure to put on a, a little kid. But it's also really come to understand it as a way that black people and people of color and, and third culture kids and kids of immigrants and have to find ways to survive within white supremacy. Yeah. And being excellent, outshining, working three times as hard just to be treated the same is a way that we try to survive within white supremacy. But it really, I remember was, I remember feeling like this isn't right. This isn't fair. I'm going to prove you wrong. You know, um, that the world can't be really set up that way. Um, and just feeling this great sense of, loss and you know as a seven-year-old like you don't have control over anything and when yeah. you're told that the things that make you who you are your identities are the reasons why you're going to be treated as lesser than it leaves you with this great sense of um of loss of control i identify so much with your story and just the early parts in because uh, you said one thing that that really resonates with many people who grew up with the intersectional identities that we have. You said, even when you were around other black people, you were yeah. coming from a different frame of reference. And for me, right. you know, it was never quite black enough or Nigerian enough or, you know, man enough or, or any, you know, boy enough, I guess at the time, because right. I was always moving in and out. And I remember, you know, my parents will have these set of expectations for me. I'm the oldest of three boys. And they would say, you know, the world wouldn't look at you the same way. Uh, you know, differently, I knew, but they would also give you this other pressure and say, you know, you are a roxin, you are a roxin, you cannot embarrass us. In, 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 right. you, cannot, you cannot embarrass us. You, you are the oldest, you are the oldest, right. your, bro, your brothers oh, are watching, your brothers are watching the you. Oldest, right, <laughs> yeah. being the oldest on top of everything else. Exactly. Like, yeah. Oh, yes. Your, your brothers are watching, your cousins are watching you, your uncle is watching you. <laughs> so imagine yeah. all those things and then at the same time you're thinking, I just want to be a kid that's accepted right. and I don't want to explain anything. And obviously right. it's not that they're putting this on us. It, it, this is just how we have come to do, uh, come to see the world because of yes. you know, white supremacy, which we'll define soon. Um, and following your journey, I said, I've been, I've been watching you and there are many reasons you're one of my favorite people. It's because you then found a pivotal moment. There was a turning point for you in August, you know, uh, 2017, right? Um, yeah that really connected you back to your seven-year-old self because you know yeah. seven-year-old self you had the, the the conversation with your mom and then you started to find your, your identity and then you moved to to qatar at 15 i believe yes yes yeah and am i saying that right? Qatar, i always have here i always hear qatar or qatar which i always you? say it different ways i'm like qatar qatar <laughs> yeah qatar okay. i always say it differently uh-huh uh, so 
walk us through that path where you, 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 you're, you know, going down the conventional path, you're doing things you yeah. feel like you're, you're meant to. And then August 2017 happens. Yes. So I, it's so, it's so interesting looking back because up until August 2017, I had been obviously always aware of my difference. Um, you know, I'd been at that point working as a self-employed kind of solopreneur, life coach, business coach um, in, in the sort of online business world, the wellness world, the personal development world, which is very white. It's a very white space. And I had just adjusted to, oh, this is just like where I, how I grew up, you know, <laughs> I'm one of a few only handful of people of color in these spaces. I'll just adapt to that as I, as I always have. Um, but in the, but in August, 2017, the Unite the Right rally happened in Charlottesville, Virginia. And we saw the images all around the world of the men marching in the streets with the, the torches and the anger and the hate in their eyes as they were screaming racial slurs. And I had up until that point for a few months been sort of really investigating and really questioning, like, why is the space so white? And why do we not talk about um, things to do with race and racial justice? Why are we talking about changing the world, but we're not talking about anything to do with racism, but I hadn't said anything publicly up until that point about it. But when that rally happened and we saw the images on the news, I, it was like my little seven-year-old girl was like, this is what my mom was talking about. This look of hate in their eyes is directed at me and people who look like me. What she said was real and it's true. And this is a visceral visual representation of that. And I think so many of us have our, for whatever reason, different trigger moments where we have that slap across the face, you know, or the, yeah. the light bulb goes off inside and we realize what is white supremacy and how it impacts us and how it's affecting us. And that was it for me. And so from there, I was driven to write this article to my audience at the time who were predominantly spiritual white women. And so I a letter I need to talk to spiritual white women about white supremacy and that that article went very viral and that initiated me into this work around white white supremacy and anti-racism that's I mean that's that's what that's why I think this is so important to share it's I think a lot of people sometimes think that they need a platform to be successful right uh they think right. if they're not a platform they can't make an impact and you you saw the unite the the right rally. And I, I remember where I was. I remember what, you know, it was after a series of things, that whole year was full of yeah. shootings. And, and well, we, yeah. I mean, we had just been coming off of the 2016 um, elections. elections. So yeah. there was a lot going on, you know, and we were all becoming very aware of things in a whole new way and different kinds of conversations were happening. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. The, and, and I remember the things that continue to happen in the year, whether it's Philando Castile, uh, you know, Alton Sterling, all these things, which prompted me to write an article as well. Um, mm. And the thing that, uh, that was pivotal for me at that point was I was sitting in the subway. I, I, I live in New York for the audience. And there was a young black man who had a hat on and he had written on the hat, uh, please don't kill me. 
or something like that. Um, and I took a picture of it, but we had just made eye contact and we just acknowledged each other because we both knew what was happening. It was just that eerie. And so I can remember the, I, I can, I guess I can identify with the, the state of mind you were, but you were on the other side of the world and you were feeling this. Right, right, right. <laughs> which, is, which is interesting. Yeah. It, it is. And it's so, and I think this is part of the, 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 the thing about being a third culture kid is that you have this, and I know you, you know what I mean when I say this, you have this feeling of you don't belong anywhere, but you belong everywhere. Yeah. And I really struggled for many years. I mean, I remember during university, I struggled through nearly my entire bachelor's degree with depression and anxiety. And a lot of it had to do with feeling very mis misplaced and, and sort of not knowing what my identity was. And I know many of us at that age go through kind of those emotions. But for me, I had been living in the United Kingdom and then we moved here to Qatar and I'd lived here for three years. And then I went back to the United Kingdom and I was like, who even am I? <laughs> I don't know what is going on and who I am. Um, but as I've grown, you know, as an adult and really come to see the reason why I'm able to identify and see things in a different way is because of my third culture kid lens that I see the world through. Right. And, and also that we live in an increasingly connected world, that things that are happening, like we say, on the other side of the world aren't really on the other side of the world. They're on our mobile phones and on our social media apps. And we have instant connection you know, none of my closest friends live in Qatar. They live in the Netherlands, uh, Canada, New York, um, you know, like all, all, over, all, over. all <laughs> over the world. Right. Chicago, like all over the world. And we have to make an intentional effort to see each other. Um, so, so, yeah, it, it is kind of strange, but it's also not at the same time. Yeah. 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 And obviously as as that happened that you know lit a fire under you and then something at 2am happened for you it was almost a yeah. year after something almost a year after walk us through that yeah yeah so 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 in between publishing that viral letter and what what happened a year later i went through a period of every single day having conversations with white people online mainly spiritual white women because that's who i'd addressed in my letter I'm talking to them about anti-racism and white supremacy. And it was so hard. It was so tough <laughs> because, you know, now we're in a time where having these conversations has become, you know, you could say the norm. But back then, especially in that area of the, you know, the spiritual and wellness and personal growth space, people weren't really having that conversation as a, as a, as a, um, in a really direct way or even in a in any way whatsoever um and so my article introduced to many of these people concepts ideas perceptions that were just completely brand new to them and because of their real sense of identity that i am not racist and i am one of the good ones and i'm a, a liberal a progressive spiritual person there is no way that I could be associated with anything to do with racism or white supremacy. And so I had to deal with a lot of um, what Robin D'Angelo calls white fragility, a lot of defensiveness, a lot of crying, a lot of um, frustration and anger and attack. 
And it was really, really exhausting because it wasn't like I had suddenly decided, oh, I'm going to become an anti-racism teacher. No, I published an article and unwittingly entered into this world. So I was completely unprepared for the wave that was coming back at me. Um, and I was on my own journey of awakening and I was on my own journey of understanding who I am as a black Muslim woman within white supremacy. So that was a, a really tough time for me. But over the years, we were continuing to have these conversations every day and I was learning how to better navigate myself in the spaces. I, I, I realized that a shift had taken place in how um, white people were able to have conversations about white supremacy. It was less white fragility, there was less defensiveness, there was more understanding that racism was very nuanced and it wasn't just a, um, no pun intended, a, a black and white thing. Um, so, so one night while I'm, I'm trying to fall asleep, it was a, a full moon and I'm in bed and my husband is snoring next to me because he falls asleep very easily. Um, <laughs> bless him. <laughs> he just knocks out. Um, but I, I was, my brain, you know, is, I'm an overthinker and it was also a full moon, which gets me very jittery. And so I just think, oh, well, what can I reflect on? Because my brain needs something to think about. And, um, and I start just thinking about how th this time a year ago, where was I and how was I? What was going on? And um, I was really amazed to see that there had been a shift. And I was really curious to know what had that shift been about? Why had it come about? Why, what had people learned about themselves and white supremacy that made talking about white supremacy less stressful to everyone and so i grab my phone and i i just start writing what i think is about to be a single post um what have you learned about you and white supremacy i thought just a single post posted on my instagram and done but before i post i i think well what is white supremacy actually um how do you define it what does it look like and so i start writing these different prompts and and these dozens of topics come out and and they become what is now known as me and white supremacy um it started as a an instagram challenge that i launched that same night so i i put together these 28 day prompts i thought it's a full moon we're going to do a full moon challenge like a 28 day challenge and i have all the prompts so i put up a post and said tomorrow we're going to start this 28 day challenge um, I'm inviting people who have white privilege to go on this journey with me to explore um, their white privilege, explore their complicity in white supremacy, explore their unconscious racist thoughts and beliefs and really unpack that. And, uh, and so I post it and then I go to sleep and then, <laughs> and then forget about it the next morning. <laughs> so I open my my phone and I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> a good idea. Um, because, you know, I, there was no planning that went into it. I was really following my own curiosity. And my mentor, Dr. Dr. Frantonia Pollins, calls it moving at the speed of inspiration. You know, I wasn't, it was, this wasn't a month, you know, months planning and blueprinting. This was receive the download and then walk it out. Um, and so we did this 28 day journey that thousands of people participated in online. Um, and a few months later, I then turned it into a workbook, which I self published and it went very viral as well. And within the space of, of six months, a hundred thousand people downloaded that workbook. 
Um, and then from there, we wrote a, an actual book. So the published hardcover book became a New York Times bestseller. And it's been this incredible journey from what started one night as just a, a thought, what have they learned about themselves and white supremacy in the summer of 2018 to the beginning of 2020 in New York Times bestselling book and, and really a global cultural movement. That's, that's incredible. And I, I, I don't know, I, I love stories like this because it's, it's so clearly full, uh, sorry, fueled by your interest uh, and your right. desire to do better and your desire to be what you say uh, is a good ancestor, right? And uh, that passion drives everything. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put a challenge. I'm gonna put a workbook. I'm, I don't know what's gonna happen out of this, but it's, if it goes viral, it goes viral. And then I'm gonna manage the work. And I'm also doing my other job and I'm hosting podcasts and I'm meeting all right. this. <laughs> um, but there's yeah. gotta be something within you that was even further awakened as these things would happen. I mean, first you get, when you start to realize that you are a viral magnet, that's <laughs> what I'm gonna yeah. call it. <laughs> you, you write an article that goes viral your instagram that goes viral your workbook goes viral what is happening within you as these things are happening are you realizing the power you have you know what i actually wrote an article in 2016 that went viral as well and that was oh, my first we forgot that one going viral. <laughs> yeah so and that was that one was actually it had nothing to do with racism it was actually addressed to the um, life coaching industry and it was called um, why those six-figure business coaches are failing you mm. and it was about a trend that I was seeing in the in the industry again around how the focus really was on money over everything and I and don't get me wrong money is good but what I was seeing was I was receiving clients who had who had who had just worked with a coach or been in a program where so much of the focus was on the process and the techniques and the tactics, but nothing was about them actually how they show up as as leaders within themselves and what they're bringing, what the what uniqueness they're bringing to the table. Um, so that was my first time going viral, and so I, I feel like because I that happened in 2016. When it happened again in 2017, I was better able to navigate going viral. Um, because when you go viral, it's, it's like, it's something that you in, in theory think, oh, oh, it's gonna be great. And then that's it, I've made it, you know? And I'm gonna get all of these like new email subscribers and it's gonna lead to new opportunities and so on and so forth. And that does happen but it also magnifies all the things that you really think about yourself deep yep. down because yeah. you've got now a big, you know, flashlight pointing straight at you That's and true. people with, you know, people with microphones waiting to hear what you have to say. And yeah. so I'm grateful that it happened on a smaller, smaller level between 2016 and 2017. Um, but when it happened in, in 2016, actually, I realized that the thing that I had always wanted to do but had not really given myself fully over to was exactly what I was supposed to be doing, which is writing. Mm. So I had been life coaching and that was really, I was really passionate about it. I was really passionate about supporting people because the coaching industry and, and personal growth books and works had really saved 
me in my life from when I was depressed and anxious um, in my university years. But the truth of the matter is life coaching was something that depleted me and writing came as easy to me as breathing in and out. And so when I wrote that article and it went viral and I thought that was unexpected, (laughs) you know, because you always think, (laughs) how do I, how am I, you know, how do you manufacture going viral? You can't, you really can't. You, you, you just show up and, and serve and you, and you write, but, it really was a real like big neon flashing sign to me. Leila, you're supposed to be writing. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and, and that set me on that path. And so when I wrote the 2017 article, and, and as I've continued to write with, with me and white supremacy, it continues to be a reaffirmation that committing to showing up as a writer first was the exact thing that I should have done from day one. Absolutely. And that I'm on my that I'm on my path. I'm on the path that I'm supposed to be on. You certainly are. You certainly are. And here we are with me and white supremacy, which once again I will reiterate my favorite book of the year. Um, what is white supremacy? Yes. So I purposely called the challenge in the book me and white supremacy and not something else that would have been maybe um easier for for people who are white to hear or to understand because a lot of times the understanding about what white supremacy is 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 confused white supremacy isn't something that only belongs to the extremists or the kkk and the neo-nazis the um you know very right-wing extremists it's not that's that's a very extreme version of white supremacy but white supremacy isn't about I intentionally, purposefully want to treat people who are not white differently to me, but it's, it's an institution, it's a paradigm, it's a, it's, a, it's a worldview, it's the way that society is set up. And it's born out of a very um, simple uh, belief, but a very destructive one. And that belief, that paradigm is that people who are white or who look white are superior to people of other races and therefore they deserve to dominate over people of other races. So we've seen what that looks like in history through things like enslavement, through things like colonization, you know, land theft, genocide, and so on, but it still exists today. It wasn't, it's not just about the things that happened in history, it's how it shows up today from um, things that happen on a sort of institutional level, like the, the pay gap, that exist on a racial level, yeah. as well as interactions within families, within friendship groups at work, where people of color are racially aggressed every single day. It, it spans all spectrums. And where it comes from is the fact that we're all conditioned into white supremacy. And the, and the fact that people who are white are privileged by white supremacy. What that means is, doesn't mean that they haven't struggled or they haven't had a hard life or they haven't had any, um, they've just lived a perfect life. But what it means is that their whiteness hasn't been the cause of any struggle that they've had in their life. Yeah. Their, their whiteness has protected them from being harmed or being treated as less than because of their race. And they are privileged over people of color. So it comes at the expense of people of color. Um, 
and so white supremacy shaped who I who I am. It shaped how I saw myself. It shapes what we are taught is normal or right or correct, right? Versus what is marginal, what is different. You know, whiteness is very much the dominant culture in many countries, societies around the world. And that dominance really is harmful. It it, it not only it's not just hurtful, it it kills. It does. It yes. Does. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, there's, it's always, you know, uh, every time I hear this, I'm always, you know, you sigh, you take a deep breath because this is, it's very heavy and it's one to unpack. And you, you share several stories within the book that do highlight white supremacy, like your dad's job. And you, when your dad told you, you know, what he was, um, you were like taken aback because you had a vision of, uh, you know, people that your dad is, um, something with the sea. Yeah, he's a cat. Yeah, so he's captain. a he's captain. a sea captain, right? Yeah, sea captain. <laughs> yeah. sea captain. That's, that's what yeah. I was saying. So yeah. you, you had yeah. this vision of, you know, I guess whatever the perception of of a white person that was leading a, a captain is when he told you. Yeah, that. basically, an uh, an old white man with a white beard. That's that's what you have to look like if you're a captain. You're not a a young black man. You know that doesn't make any sense. Um, it didn't that's make any crazy. sense to me and, and my siblings yeah. uh, growing up and. You know, my dad is extremely well respected in his industry, not just here locally, but around the world. He's done amazing projects. He's done amazing things. Um, and he's had to do that in spite of racism. Yeah. But that's that's yeah. how it shows up, though. You When you don't see yourself mm-hmm. or you're not used to seeing other things, you confuse yeah. what um, isn't the standard as the standard. And you start to compare right. yourself to something that's different. And And I imagine... And, you know, I read some of this um, in, in, in the work that you, you put out and even in interviews that I've watched with you, you, you say that a lot of people have a hard time dealing with the term privilege or that they're privileged because, well, they grew up in a poor neighborhood or right. they didn't. Um, they also experienced some level of discrimination based on their background. I'm curious to see... Right if you saw more of that with the book? With that same, do you mean with that same pushback? Same, same pushback, same um, retort uh, or- Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that I try to address in, in any interview that I do. Um, I think it's, it's really important for people to understand because I get, I get it. You know, if you haven't lived a life where you were economically privileged or you lived um, and, and you have identities that are other identities that are marginalized. It's hard to hear the word privilege because that hasn't been your experience um, in your life. But the thing that I try to help people to understand is that privilege isn't a, it, it's not just a, it's like a, there are different identities that we have and some of them are privileged and some of them are not. Yeah. Yeah. And so while I may be a black Muslim woman, I have, like my mom said, these three things, right? That in a world that privileges um, men. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Privileges, um, not people who are Muslim, and privileges white people. Uh, those are areas in which I experience marginalization and harm and discrimination. But I have areas where I am privileged. I am able-bodied. Um, yep. I'm neurotypical. I'm a straight cisgendered woman. Um, you know, I have areas where I am very privileged. And when I think about, I was having a, a conversation yesterday about the same question, actually. And I said, it's like if a, because, um, you know, you get that pushback of like, no, I'm not privileged. And when you tell me that I'm privileged, that makes me feel upset right it, it, yeah. makes, it makes me feel like it makes me feel upset so it's like me saying to a disabled person if a disabled person says to me look you are privileged in this society and it's 100 percent true we live in an ableist society in an ableist world that is built for able-bodied people and, and disabled people are seen as the as we're making an exception for them or if we have the resources of the time we will make um uh, things more accessible to them and so for me as an able-bodied person, for me to say, well, I don't um, like for you to say that because I'm a black Muslim woman and I feel like I am not privileged because those have been my experiences. I mean, it's ridiculous to say that. It is. When it comes to, right, when it comes to being able-bodied, I am 100% privileged. So I can hold both things as being true at the same time. And yeah. that's what I'm asking people to do is hold multiple truths at the same time and not use the parts of your identity which are marginalized as an excuse for why you won't examine the other parts of your life in which you are privileged. Yeah, I often describe it as uh, uh, me being black and Nigerian and a man. And I, and I say it's possible to be oppressed and privileged. So I could have male privilege, for yeah. example, I can jog. Well, we can't really jog now with uh, Corona. Um, but right. I, I, I was, <laughs> I can, uh, I can jog outside past 9 PM without worrying about being harassed. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, yeah. doesn't mean that I still don't I get speak to my husband. Yeah, it doesn't mean I don't get stopped right. at the airport for my passport. I mean, even right. Or, right. or you know, certain neighborhoods, you know, I I am more aware. So that is something that um, people can use to actually widen access. Uh, you know, if you have a privilege, you can tell more people like you about the marginalized. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And I and I think part of being a, a third culture kid really again helps us to hold multiple truths at the same time. Yes, because we're not we don't fit into one box. So we accept all things as being true at the same time, because that is our identity. And part of having in particular white privilege and being privileged in, in, in is being seen as the standard 
if you haven't had any other experiences, it's really hard to see how certain things can be all true at the same time. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Then what happens with the book is, you know, you you obviously are writing the book for many people to, first of all, come face to face with uh, with their, their privilege and how they participate in, you know, perpetuating white supremacy. I do come across yeah. this thing, and I notice you do as well, people who say they're good, right? They're good people. Yeah. And my response is always, you shouldn't be so, con- you know, um, concerned about being good. You should be more concerned about the, the well-being of people, you know? I mean, always say, I'm well-meaning. Yeah. I'm saying, well, don't be just well-meaning. Think about the well-being of others. Right. And it's, it's interesting because I remember reading your work and you, and you had said you wish you came up with this acronym, but your work is basically TLC. You said, the three, yes. <laughs> yeah, waterfalls, baby. Uh, you said, the, the things, <laughs> sorry, TLC reference for anyone. But um, <laughs> uh, the three things that are needed to do the work of allyship, as you, you say, is, is truth, love, commitment. Can you explain? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I wish I. I had my um, media coach, TJ Mercer, with me when I was writing the book because she's the one who, who came <laughs> up with that, you know, because she was like, so what do you tell people that they need, you know, in order to do this work? And I said, well, I tell them they need truth and they need love and they need commitment. And she's just as straight out of her mouth jumps, oh, so they need TLC. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> 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 uh, so um, but but yeah this work is 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 very hard it's it's a it's and it's hard because if you have lived your entire life believing one thing about yourself and the world and a book such as mine you know comes into your life and it reveals to you that what you thought about yourself and what you thought about the world isn't the whole picture and a lot of things have been twisted, changed, lied about, and a lot of things have been um, hidden from you. It's like being turned inside out. Like, it's like, wait, what? Wait, what? You know? And so you, you begin to realize with this work that it's not enough just to read the book and to understand the concepts intellectually and, and uh, you know, not engage with it personally, but you actually have to put yourself into it. When you put yourself into it, you really examine what is my relationship with white supremacy, my personal intimate relationship with white supremacy, that that can be quite terrifying for a lot of people. Um, And so I talk about in order to do this work and to do it sustainably and not just as a one and done thing, you need truth, meaning you have to tell the truth. You have to be willing to go inside to the depths of yourself in order to really pull out what have I been thinking, feeling about people of color? What have I been doing to them, whether I meant it or not, whether I knew I was doing it or not? What has that cost me? How have I harmed people of color? Really getting into the truth of it. Because if you don't tell the truth and you just reveal enough so that you can jump on to the next chapter, like you're really wasting everyone's time. Um, you're, you're doing yourself a huge disservice because you're, you're given this work which allows you to do the personal work of anti-racism. But more importantly, you're doing a massive disservice to the Black, Indigenous, people of color in your life who deserve for the white people around them to show up as allies and advocates and accomplices. 
And so you have to tell the truth. You also need love. And so much of my work is, the foundation of it is love. Um, and that love, when I, when I first started, when I first entered into that work, that love looked like anger. And that anger was the realization that I and people who look like me were treated the way that we are treated within white supremacy. Anger came up as, as a form of love because I knew that's what we, we didn't deserve that. We don't deserve that. Um, and so love can look different ways. Sometimes it looks like anger. Sometimes it looks like grief. Sometimes it looks like going outside of yourself and, and doing things that you don't necessarily get a tangible benefit from, but because of your courage, because of the way you show up, other people get to breathe more easily. And so love has to be for me, this, this source from which we do this work from, because when the truth telling gets really, really hard, you need something bigger and deeper than yourself to keep you going. And many of the people who I consider good ancestors who Globally, we call good ancestors, you know, people like Martin Luther King Jr., people like Mahatma Gandhi, you know, they had this really deep spiritual center. Um, they showed up in the world very much on the front lines. So very, you know, they weren't sort of, um, this wasn't woo-woo love, right? This wasn't, yeah. this wasn't love and light, right? This was love in action, but it came from this real, depth of something bigger than themselves uh, bigger than themselves fueling them and refilling them as well because the work is so hard and you have to really ask yourself is it worth it like I'm putting myself out there again and again and again and with people like Martin Luther King Jr at the, the, the price that they paid was their lives yeah what would motivate you to do that again and again and again? It has to be something greater than yourself. So love is so important to me. And then commitment, because truth and love won't always, like, you won't always find them. You know, you, they won't always be available to you. And when you are white, when you have white privilege, you're not used to having to be um, in, a, in a place of discomfort. And this work is inherently uncomfortable. And on those days when you can't access those feelings of motivation, of inspiration, of I want to keep going, commitment has to be the thing to keep you going. And for me, that is this commitment to showing up as a, as a good ancestor. Because I have my own, I'm in my own TLC, right? <laughs> like, I also have to have TLC. And commitment for me is when the work is hard, I stay in it because I'm committed to becoming a good ancestor. So even like right now as we're recording this, we're in this time where there's this global pandemic happening because of the coronavirus. We are social distancing, um, quarantining, people are, are dying. Um, my kids are at school as many um, kids are right now. And life as we know it has just been completely um, upended and we don't know when it will return to normal, if it will ever return to normal, what will the new normal be on the other side of this wave? We have no idea. And the changes have happened so fast and it's put many of us in this state of discomfort and confusion and unsafety. And so I've really been sitting with myself and really been 
allowing myself to process all the things that I feel, which is um, a lot. And at the same time, as I sit with myself and I nurture myself and I take care of myself, what's been rising back up within me is Layla. Good ancestors are born during times like this. Good ancestors are needed during times like this. It's why we exist. It's why we're here. So fill yourself back up, do what you need to do to take care of yourself, but then show up because people need you. And so we're, you know, I'm talking about that within the coronavirus, but when it comes to the work of anti-racism and white supremacy, it's always been uncertain times. It's always been difficult times. And we all, we've always needed good ancestors to show up. So yeah, I just really want to encourage people to think greater than their everyday life right now. Like your, your fingerprint will be left on the world. Your impact will be left on the world. And whether you intentionally or in an unintentionally choose what that impact is going to be, you're still going to impact people. So I would rather it be a conscious choice than it be by accident. That's beautiful. And that's well said. And I think something else that comes up for me is the importance of self-care in, in this. Yeah. Process. So, yeah, I mean, sounds like you, you emphatically agree. <laughs> so. Self-care, self-care has been, so, like, I'm just shaking my head, just smiling from ear to ear, because without self-care, I, me and White's Promise wouldn't exist. Hmm. It, it wouldn't so. exist. It, and, so. and so what I mean by that is, so I talked about that period of time between when I published I Need to Talk to Spiritual White Women and when Me and White Supremacy was born. And a few pivotal things happened in that year for me. And one of them was that I reached such a point of burnout that I recognized that if I continued to do the work the way that I was doing it, I would eventually kill myself. If not physically, then absolutely spiritually I was already quite um I was depleted I have pictures of myself from that time and the light from my eyes had completely gone out I was losing hope I was pessimistic I wasn't this that you see now. I wasn't the me that you see now I wasn't at, at all you know when you talked about the joy on my book tour none of that existed um and so I made a really one of the smartest decisions in my life which is to start working with my mentor and she has really taught me, we're in our third year of mentoring together now. And my work with her is a huge part of my self-care because alongside with me doing this work out in the world, you know, it's a, it's a energetically, there's a lot that I'm putting out into the world and a lot of people that I'm holding space for. And so we have to ask ourselves, like if we're holding space for people, who's holding space for us? That's true. And so there's no way that I can do the work that I do without a very strong self-care practice, and without a very um, uh, capable, very wise, very um, amazing uh, mentor who holds that space for me, who reminds me of certain principles that she has taught me and that she continues to hold me accountable to. So principles such as staying in my priority position, which is my in terms of priorities i am number one on the priority list and that means i come before my children and my husband and it means i come before my you know my family it means i can i come before my friends i come before um 
uh, my readers and my followers. I, I come before all of those people. And so every decision that I make, I have to be looking at is, does this position keep me in that number one spot or does it take me out of the one, number one spot? So when we look at things like, if I, one of the things I had to really um, learn about <laughs> last year was putting other people's opinions about me before myself. Interesting. That is me taking, right, that is me taking myself out of the number one spot and saying, what you think about me matters to me more than what I think about myself. Hmm. Um, on the book tour, some of the things that I had put in place ensured that I was always safe. You know, so it's not, these are not necessarily things that I share on social media, but at each spot that I went to, I always had security with me. You had, wait, 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 what do you mean? You had like, you're talking about like men and women and people, uh, it could be non-binary people that were there with you? I always had security with me, armed, plain clothes security with me because I'm a black Muslim woman who is talking about white supremacy in predominantly white spaces. That's I have to have security with me. I really want the audience if they're listening to understand you just you heard my surprise there, but that's what happens as you start to elevate in platform, you know, because yeah. a lot of times from the outside yeah. people are saying, look at you, you got everything you want. It's all this. But the fact right. that that's the other thing you have to think about, that's that's first of all, that should bring out some of the privilege that we all have, because <laughs> I didn't even think of it as, as, as a man myself. But I, I also know that there are several black men who, in this world. Uh, in this field of work who do have security, but I didn't even think about that. That's right. what, that's part of the work here. You're revealing that's wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, and that, and, and ha so having to have security is, is one me putting myself in my priority position. I come first. So I will not, I made really a really clear decision with myself that I will not self-sacrifice myself for anybody in this work. Well done. I will not sacrifice my peace of mind, my emotional well-being, my physical safety. I will not do that because that is actually not being a good ancestor. That is that is that is me perpetuating white supremacy. That is me saying I come last. My needs come last. So part of it is staying in my priority position and then the other principle that she's taught me is managing your expectations. But I said, I'm a black Muslim woman touring around for three weeks by myself, um, the United States of America, where owning a firearm is, is legal, right? And where, yes, there are people who are open to this conversation, but there are many people who are not. And so when I manage my expectations, I really think, I, I think ahead and think what, what could happen? And what, how do I need to prepare myself so that I can protect myself from those things happening? Wow. So self-care isn't, you know, like manicures and bubble baths. Self-care is, is really prioritizing yourself, really managing your expectations, really yeah. making sure that as I walk out my path, I don't do it in a way where I'm perpetuating the very things that I'm trying to, to work against. 
very like, I want to do this work full. I want to do it joyful. I want to do it, you know, abundant. Um, someone interviewed me in, in London and they said, um, it's like, what made you take on the burden of doing this work? This work is so burdensome. And I said, I don't, I don't see it as burdensome. And not because it isn't like, I'm not, I'm not um, trying to like spiritually bypass or anything. But if I were to frame my life's purpose as a burden, then I'm setting myself up for a very nasty fall. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Like I'm waking up every morning, Tayo, and I'm like, oh, gotta go do this burden. Right. Gotta go. That's not a good way to live. <laughs> go. It's not a way to live. Right. Yeah. So I just, I don't frame it in that way because when I frame it in that way, it becomes something that, that I'm doing that I think that I owe the world instead of something that is coming out of my own desire and will and curiosity and creativity. Truth, love, and commitment, TLC. That's right. Like you said, <laughs> like you said even as, as we stay on this topic here, there, there, there was a moment um, uh, in your book and in your journey where you highlighted where you lost someone that you thought was a good friend. And for those listening yeah. context, the book is structured in a 28-day format. So each day is a prompt that is given with, and I, I love books that, you know, are actually, you know, applicable and so that you can actually create your own journal. So you can journal along mm -hmm. the book. And I, I think, was it day nine? It was, I think it's you and black women. Yeah. Or, yeah. The infamous yeah. day nine. <laughs> everything was yeah. honky door. Everything was, oh gosh. Oh, this oh, is my like, yeah, we're part of this movement. And then right. you and black women, why feminism is very different and you're neglecting black women. What happened? Yeah. It sounds like all hell. Oh my loose. God. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I remember I was, um, I started day one and I was like, oh, okay. People are really like in this work. Like people are really showing up and really journaling. And I was kind of like, oh my God, am I prepared for this? Like, am I able to walk this out for 28 days? It seems really heavy. And I hadn't, right. I hadn't thought ahead of what I had actually signed up for and what I was inviting people into. But, you know, I was really trusting and faithful. And, and I said, I'm, I'm going to be obedient to, to the call and obedient to the work. And so I start working it out day one, day two, day three. And I'm like, wow, I'm actually okay. Like, maybe I can actually do this. You know, <laughs> maybe I'll be okay. <laughs> right? That's me processing behind the scenes going, oh, wow. Like, I feel like, yes, this is a lot. But also I feel like, you know, God is really supporting me in this work. And he's really helping me. And I'm not alone in this. And I was surprised that you know i wasn't having any very strong or upset um emotional reactions until day nine and we looked at you and black women and i broke down crying and it was again that seven-year-old little girl asking why do they hate us so much what what did we do exactly that they think these things about us, right? Because I'm reading about how um, primarily white women see black women. And there were so many things. And I'm like, really? Wow. Like, really? They, they um, like, one of the things that I remember was a woman who said, you know, she, she had, um, she was at the hospital waiting for her doctor's appointment. And when the doctor come up, came out, they were, surprised that the doctor was a black woman they were not expecting the doctor to be a black woman 
and they noted their own sense of surprise, like, oh, a black woman can be in this sort of position, right? And really unpacking, like, do I actually trust black women to be in positions of leadership? Right. Um, you know, questioning when a black woman is put in a position of leadership, why was she put there? Did she get some sort of special um, exemption? Was there some, you know, other circumstances that allowed her to rise into that position? And it really, really hit me that, wow, like I've been working all my life three times as hard <laughs> to fit in. Yeah. And, and here, I'm, I'm hearing from people that they don't even think we should, like, we're not smart enough to be in those spaces. We're not capable enough to be there. We, uh, we don't belong there. Um, and that was just very, very very heartbreaking for me and for a lot of black women, the, the, the people who were observing the challenge itself. Um, I remember speaking to a number of, of black women and them saying that this is really hard to watch, but it's also really validating because now I know what they actually think. I can actually just get on with my life. Wow. So it was, it's hard, but it was kind of like eye opening and, Oh, so I can stop trying to, fit in then because this is what they already think of me while I was trying to fit in yeah yeah and and of course when you start to lose friends that you thought were friends that it becomes a different type of relationship um I think that yeah it, it is a chapter in the book where you, I get I guess you and this person started to distance themselves from you uh, because of something right. you had posted and then you you'd asked um and she seemed to give the excuse like you say you know i'm a good person or she's yeah. so defensive that you felt like you needed to have this breakup letter or breakup then with her you right. that was part of your self-care but that was part of my self-care this is um this is one of my best friends for a number of years you know somebody that i was on the phone with every single week you know we had our weekly appointment with each other um we we loved each other and supported each other and and that was all great until I started talking about white supremacy. Yeah. And she retreated herself. It was a very small, it was a very slow and quiet exiting her presence out of my life. And, um, and so when I made the decision to end the friendship, you know, the question that I asked her was, you know, I just want to understand, you see me every single day having these conversations with white women online. You see the way that they talk to me and, the way that they, you know, racially aggress me and why do you not show up? Why do you not check in with me? Or um, even if you're not showing up on those posts, why are you not checking in with me to make sure I'm okay? And the response from her was that, well, you know, I noticed that you have a lot of women of color and black women who show up for you. So, wow. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I read that part and I just, I just couldn't believe the, yeah. The separation there, because <laughs> the way right. you presented it. And this is, yeah, right. Best friend. And, and this is somebody who is one of the nicest people in the world. Like to this day, I will maintain, she is genuinely such a nice person. Just so nurturing, so caring, um, really takes care of people, which is why it was so hard for me, because I couldn't understand. She was going against her own very nature to not show up for me. Um, and um, And somebody asked me the other day, so do you, you know, have you, heard from them again or if you re re reconnected or anything and i said no they they blocked me <laughs> she blocked me on social media she yeah. that was it she's she's done with me you know so yeah and you know it was hard at the time but it was because i had a 
I had a misunderstanding. I wasn't managing my expectations around what white supremacy does and how it isn't just about white people out there. It, it affects all of your relationships with white people. And when white people aren't engaged in personal anti-racism work, they're simply just not safe around, safe to be around for people of color. So I was expecting her to show up for me when she had never looked at her own relationship with white supremacy. And here I am talking to spiritual white women about white supremacy, spiritual white women being a description of who she was, right? But in my mind, I was like, well, she should know I'm, I, you know, I'm not, this isn't a, an attack on her. And as my friend, she should want to show up for me. And that was me not managing my expectations, me not being fully understanding of, of the fact that it wasn't personal what she did. It was how white supremacy infects us all and it, and it harms us all. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for being so open and so vulnerable. I love that. That's uh, yeah, that's part of your, uh, your superpower there. So this is, this <laughs> where, where can people get your book and connect with you? Yeah. So you can connect with me on Instagram, which is the only social media platform that I use. Um, but you can also, you can also connect with me through um, my own podcast. So Good Ancestor Podcast, where I love to have conversations just like this with incredible people, um, largely people of color, because I, one of the things that I was so frustrated about in the personal growth and, and wellness space was that we often are not uplifted, we're not platformed, we're not seen, we're not elevated. And it's not because we don't exist, but it's because white supremacy keeps us in the margins. And so I make a real intentional effort to highlight and uplift as many people of color, leaders and teachers and authors and creators as possible, because first of all, they inspire me. But secondly, part of me using my privilege as somebody who has a larger platform is to make sure that I get as many, like as many eyes on as many people of color as possible. Um, so that's what I do with Good Ancestor podcast. Um, and then people can find my book at um, me and me and white supremacy book.com and they can find my online home at LaylaFsad.com. And one of the other things that I really want to share as well is the hub that I'm building this year um, that will be what I hope and what I intend will be the home of where all my work sits and it's goodancestoracademy.com. And so it's this virtual uh, learning platform um, for people to come and learn how to be a good ancestor, come and do their anti-racism work, do their personal leadership work, at the minute, I've got a couple of um, virtual masterclasses that are up on there. And uh, one of them's on white feminism. And one of them is on uh, parenting and white supremacy. And we'll have some future topics as well. But it, will, it won't just be, you know, it's something that I, like I said, like when I think about being a good ancestor, it's really about leaving a legacy. And I really want to be able to teach, inspire, you know, educate, activate people with as many different forms of media as possible, whether it's podcasts, whether it's a class, whether it's a, um, 
a documentary. That's something that is in my little, like my ritual, like vision board is a, is a documentary, a supremacy <laughs> documentary. No, no, um, I, I intend it. I'm throwing it out into the universe. And when it comes back to me, I'll say, Taya, remember when I said we're going to have a documentary? And I'm going to be jumping uh, for joy. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, it's going to happen. No, I love this. I love this. I, that's the thing. I, it's, it's, it's funny with the virus, obviously, everybody's going virtual, but that's, I've had, you know, academies in mind that I've, I've wanted to launch. And, and I think it's, you know, it's with all the same sort of thing where you're talking about, it's very yeah. important to really put, uh, uh, create safe spaces for people who have been marginalized for so long and to also yeah. allow for growth, personal development mm -hmm. and, and connection and identity exploration. Yeah. So this is going to be fun. Please let me know so I can share. I would love to promote people. Uh, Thank promote you. And share your work. So. Thank you so much. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. We have come to the, the part, the final question where I always ask my guests. And it's basically mm. my mission statement reframed as a question. So, Leila, how do you use your difference to make a difference? Mm. I, my difference is definitely my superpower. All of the identities that I hold, being a third culture kid for so long was like I said earlier in the interview, I felt like this source of shame, but really I've transformed that and alchemized that and really understood it anew as, as a superpower. I'm able to see the world in a, in a different way than a lot of people because of my different experiences. Uh -huh. And so the way that I use my difference to make a difference is I understand that I can speak to different people of different races living in different countries around the world and have very nuanced and complex conversations around big issues, but do it in such a way that it feels like we're having a conversation in a coffee shop, right? We're having an intimate, deep conversation on a podcast or in a book. Yeah. Um, that is how I kind of see it as like, I'm not a local leader. I'm very much a global leader. And the reason I'm a global leader is because of my global identity. And owning that has been, has given me so much freedom to just fully show up and, and fully be able to approach some of, uh, some, of the, some of our hardest challenges. So with me, that's particularly around white supremacy, some of our toughest challenges and offer something to the world that I hope and I, and I see is able to help change minds and ch change hearts and change behaviors so that we can have a changed world. I love it. Leila Saad, ladies, gentlemen, mm. and gender non-binary individuals. This is amazing. Thank you so much for uh, spending time with us. And I know we are across different time zones. So I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved this conversation so, so much. Ah, the pleasure is mine. Until next time. Ladies, gentlemen, and gender non-binary individuals, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Ever. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.